Hi, I'm Patrick. And I'm Jeff. And we're making a TV show. With Patrick's writing. And Jeff's experience. We're on the journey to turn this story into the next bingeable series. We're documenting our collaboration. The highs and lows and everything in between. So that you can see what it takes to make a TV show while we're developing it. This is Two Guys Making a TV Show. On today's episode, we talk about finding a writer's identity and how important it is to know when pitching a series or a slate of shows. What I think we could... There's two things are coming to mind. One is no free lunch. Mm-hmm. Let's start talking about that. Yeah. So that we can put... I don't know. Well, maybe not no free... Well, yeah, no free lunch. Just You were saying on Slack getting some of that creative work done now, given that it's going to take a while to develop. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing was talking about the timeline. And also just as an added benefit, and this is relevant to Roe and relevant to anyone who's trying to make a TV show, the, the common experience for any writer or producer that's going into a room with a studio executive and is pitching something that they know they're pitching. Oftentimes the question is, Oh, this is cool. What else do you have? And the, and so you have something else that you can talk about and show and have kind of fresh in your system, but also um, it gives the executive an idea of kind of like what type of writer you are, like who are you in a greater sense, not just this project or whatever pitch is in front of them. Um, so I guess that begs the question, like what kind of writer are you, Patrick Kennedy? Who are you? Who are you? What is Patrick Kennedy? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like subversion. Mm -hmm. And you like big questions. Yeah, I I think that the, the stories that I enjoy the most are the ones where you take a simple act of subversion and say, what if that happened? How would people react? And then not be afraid to go places that might be a little uncomfortable. Because those places are probably going to be uncomfortable. That's why we don't act on those things, right? In normal day life. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of an interest there. Um, and it's it's uh, expansive because you can go a number of different places and tie a number of those different strings together, um, and done in a way that it's a standard story structure. Like I I get real tired of the more art house films that I'll watch one every few months maybe but it's just not something that i want to consume i like more consumable content yeah um because just the the very nature of that is it's watchable (laughs) whereas like i i loved the lighthouse i thought that was fun um and the robert pattinson willem defoe back and forth i think was um, uh, there's just something fun about it 
even though they're in this super miserable place. Um, but it's not something I'm, I, I watched. I showed Adrian um, last week as it popped up, I think on a service that I didn't expect it to pop up. And I realized, oh, I just want to kind of fast forward to different bits and watch the whole thing in 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pick up the highlight highlighted parts. Yeah, because after, well, you're talking about rewatchability too, right? Like there's not, a lot of times those really auteur cinema makers, um, the really talented ones like Eggers, for example, or Ari mm -hmm. Aster, um, are really good at making an experience where when you get in, like you're in the theater and you've got your popcorn and like, you're gonna sit here for two hours and pay attention to this thing, but, it's not something, it's generally not something, unless you're just a true connoisseur, you're not probably gonna like just put it on in the background or, or when your friends come over or you have a date night or whatever, you're not gonna be like, hey guys, let's watch The Lighthouse. You know, like um, it's hard to find that audience that, that is interested in that. Yeah. Uh, not because it's bad, it's actually executed quite well in many ways, but because it's just, it requires a lot of you, I think too it's very demanding of your attention and it recalls for me a lot of that conversation i was telling you about last week with the young woman who said like i don't want to waste my time like yeah. she would do, she would do exactly what you were talking about she's like just get to the parts that are like the meat of this story and i'll put together the rest because frankly the rest is is sort of like uh tissue it's just kind of connective tissue that builds from point a to point b to point c um and i think too that in service of, I mean, look, this story structure that we work with, at least in Western civilization, has been around for 2,500 plus years. Clearly, it's been battle tested, right? Like, clearly, there's a reason, and clearly, there's something that you respond to as a human being, at least in a, in a Western mindset, and very much in many Eastern mindsets, too, that you just sort of need the story to be plotted like this. Otherwise, you can do it any, any other way, but you may not hit the effect that you want it might be like okay well what are we doing here like i don't really care if this character like okay here's a perfect example um oh shit the name of it just uh it was with zendaya and um and um david washington or john david washington uh oh oh right um they're in the the bedroom for yeah. the yeah, it all takes place in a house, basically. And honestly, for the first, it's, it's basically a five-act film. For the first act, I was like, oh, this is cool. It's beautiful. It was shot really well. It's, it was really planned out, executed very well, very simply, very elegantly. And then they have the same sort of arc, mini arc again in the second act. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. We're getting to the midway point. Maybe something drastic will change. Then they did it again. And it was like they made a short film five different ways with the mm. same script. And I, by the end of it, I mean, I was fast forwarding too, you know, kind of in the second half, because I was like, okay, I think we're talking about the same thing here again. You know, like, where's this going? And you could say, oh, well, you know, that's flying in the face of contemporary structure and like, you don't need that. And this actually is like, yeah, but it made me not care. You know, yeah. like I actually did care at first and then it made me not care. So is that really is that really where you want to go? And, and, and I think it's, it's a question of audience that an earlier version of myself and my 
mid to late teens, early 20s, would love that, yeah. would love digging into it. And I think in part, because it made me feel like I was special for liking that sort of thing, knowing yeah. that it didn't appeal to a lot of people. And then I could hold myself in higher regard because those people didn't get it. Yeah, they don't have uh, taste. Yeah. Right. And yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's obviously merit to trying to innovate and push boundaries. Yeah. If that is the goal, then it's not going to be about uh, general consumption, investor returns. Like you don't make a business off of that. You create um, opportunities for places to explore, whatever else. But ultimately, that that's pushing a very tiny boundary in one specific way that may not really amount to much of anything other than to satisfy the creators and their um, impulse. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like, like what it makes me think of is the, uh, when I was in psychology and talked to people that weren't in psychology, they would say like, well, why do you use statistics to measure the validity of your experiments? It's all BS anyways, you can lie with statistics. And I think, what are you proposing to not use a like pillar of the mathematics world? Like, are you saying, let's just go with our opinions on things? Like, obviously that's not the answer, <laughs> but there is a point that, okay, sure. Are we using the right statistical measures or using a thing called a p-value? Is that the appropriate thing? Well, maybe you can tweak it and use effect size or Cohen's D or um, confidence intervals. And sure, okay. And yeah, the larger publishing community for academics and the sciences still say p-values. So like, okay, maybe there's an argument there, but the, the people that say, you know, it's all BS and we should be essentially inventing our own way of scientific inquiry it's kind of like no we, we kind of got that part down that yeah. that's the part that started with aristotle yeah. so maybe you aren't the person to completely reinvent how we do this thing yeah um so i kind of have that attitude now where sure there there could be an audience for um let's find a new way to do storytelling great like that's just not what I'm interested in and what many people are interested in either. That's, that's a very different uh, journey to go on. I think it, I, I mean, as I get older, I completely agree with you. I think as I get older, I see now that much of that is, is sort of based in ego and you said it exactly right. Like I like that in my early twenties when um when I was discovering who it was, who I was, right? And I was kind of curating the things that appealed to me. And many of those things were learning experiences that pulled me in a certain direction. And then I found the boundary of my taste or the boundary of my abilities to understand. And then I pulled back, right? But as I get older, and I've sort of kind of, I think I've, I'm never, no one's ever gonna stop learning, but I've sort of found a rhythm and a flow. And I've begun to understand the beauty of simplicity and the beauty of, of like telling a story and just frankly how hard it is to take something out of here and out of here and put it 
into not only one other person, but uh, lots of other people that you know and don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And to convolute it with like, oh, well, you just don't get it. And I made it complicated for this reason. And I abstracted this portion. And, you know, if you don't like it, then screw you. Like, I think that's kind of a defensive measure to protect your ego. I think it's about ultimately saying like, well, of course you don't get it because you don't get me and I, I, I can't be gotten. Like, yeah, you know, like I, okay, fine. If that's the work you want to make, then cool. If that's your, if that's your voice, then fine. But I think there's something, I think there's something really cool about watching um, Aronofsky's work, for example. You compare Pi, which is uh, a very complex film and I think hit at the right time. Is it necessarily his most watchable or rewatchable film? I, I, I don't think so. And you compare that against maybe something like The Wrestler, where you're like, I could watch that again, maybe not every day, but it's much more of a journey. Like I can relate to this character and I can feel for him, right? And it's, it's, uh, and it's, it's elegance and it's uh, daring is in the fact that he took a subject matter and humanized it, right? Something mm-hmm. that is about artifice. And he showed us what's behind the artifice, which was almost, I think that was the film that came out shortly after Black Swan, right? Which was sort of the inverse of that. Black Swan yeah. was about this human who was being overtaken by artifice. And this was the reverse. Um, that to me is much more like, I, I can remember that film more. I can recall it, you know, I can feel for it. I can mm-hmm. describe it to someone else. Um, yeah. yeah. That that's, that's and da- I think Darren Aronofsky is a good example because he's he's he has a unique view as a director, and it's still producing com- like mass market work. Yeah, that it's something that is made for a large audience, theatrical distribution, home viewing, like that that's still the, he might be on the edge where if he really pushed it, I could see him making a very abstract film that a select few super fans go, oh, he's changing the nature of storytelling. Yeah. And at that point I'd be like, all right, not a choice I would have made, not interested. Yeah. And I would imagine his viewership goes down, his returns go down. Um, well, but I mean, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Perfect example. David Lynch. And I know I'm going to mm. tread into like, this is where the, the, the hackles of people on the back of people's necks are probably going to go up on this. But Twin Peaks, the original one, loved it, right? Very bold things, especially when you, when you knew at the time that was on like network television. Mm-hmm. Probably unlike anything else. Well, you know, this was like the time of just after Silver Spoons and Family Ties and, and you know, yeah. uh, Full House was on at the same time as this thing. And suddenly, if you stayed up late enough, you were watching The Black Lodge and this guy like, you know, this Agent Cooper trying to figure out this weird town where these weird things happen and people are trying to fire dance with you and all this weird stuff, right? David Lynch had a lot of autonomy on that. Not total, but a lot. He had a lot of say in what was going on there. Then we go to the return, which happened in what 2018 or something. I mm-hmm. was stoked for it. I was like, "Holy shit, this is awesome!" We're gonna. I'm every week I tuned in, and every week I became more and more angry with what was happening to these characters. Agent Cooper is not even in the freaking thing 
for like 95% of the time, I got to watch Dougie Jones walk around like an idiot. And I, that would have been fine for, I would have tolerated that for an episode, two episodes, but to drag it out for 16 episodes or whatever it was is almost abusive to his audience. It's almost like, I know what you came here for and I'm denying you that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost as if he was like, I want to make this show. And the network said, we're not going to fund you if you make that show. We'll fund you if you make Twin Peaks again. And he's like, oh, okay, great. Then I'll call this Twin Peaks The Return. And um, you can be, you'll give me the money and we'll do it. And I'll make this Las Vegas weird du- Dougie Jones show. And frankly, I, I, I could, I, it lost me. And mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately, I've got Schoedenfraud. So I'll, I'll return if, if another season gets greenlit. I'll, I'll come back and I'll, I'll hope that Agent Cooper's back. Um, but that was the, the point I'm making, though, is I think that he had total control in the return. I think he was not, I don't think anyone told him anything he didn't want to do. And hence you had these long excruciating takes. You had these uh, long uh, meandering storylines that took us away from, not only from Agent Cooper, but also just from like anything, like the freaking Twin Peaks, the, the setting, the story was not involved in and had no connection to eventually, other than sort of loose like, let's just shoehorn this like this weird tangential side comment in to make it sort of connect. And I think that what made Twin Peaks the first time so good was that there were some other mediating voices to kind of rein David Lynch in and give him some guardrails and say like, okay, we'll let you do this, but you gotta at least put some dramatic tension in. We gotta, we gotta know where we're going. We gotta feel for these people, right? That's what yeah. makes, we gotta like Agent Cooper. We gotta like some of the people that he's, he's dealing with. That's what made, you know, the coffee things and the thumbs up and all that, like that was appealing to us because we, we began to feel for him. He was mm-hmm. a version of, of Mulder that I think actually was in many ways more appealing initially is because he had, we had something to latch onto, whereas we didn't have anything to latch onto in uh, The Return. You know, we had, even the characters that were familiar to us were, were suddenly very unfamiliar and not appealingly so. There just wasn't any guardrails put in. There wasn't any structure. Yeah, yeah and that's that's where in in reading uh, Disney War uh, about Michael Eisner's tenure at Disney, mm-hmm. um, the thing that's the, the thing that's coming out to me from how he's being described and his early days coming on board was uh, how to take a a business perspective to a brand like Disney that in the seventies and early eighties was faltering. And what it meant was uh, saying, we're not going for grand slams and only releasing a movie every four years. We're hitting singles and doubles. And that means reining in production costs, which means that, the directors and even the animators and their vision needs constraint. Uh, and there's some example about, um, what was it, the Albert Brooks, no, James L. Brooks movie, oh, that I'm forgetting now the name of it, but apparently it was a big, say what? As good as it gets. No, 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 it was uh, early 80s. Um, but James L. Brooks wanted to make a movie, asked for a budget of like 
$30 million. And Eisner says, you're going to get 12 and that's all you're going to get. And it turned into a kind of ugly spat between them. But Eisner was like, I'm not budging from this. If you can't make a movie for 12, you're not making a movie. So he ended up making a movie for 12. And James L. Brooks admits afterwards, uh, I'm still mad at Eisner. Yet I think I made a better movie knowing that I only had this space to play in. And I think there's, there's merit to that, that the whole notion of creativity loves a constraint. It might feel uncomfortable, but ultimately the point isn't so that I feel comfortable. The point is to make something that makes money, which means that audiences are watching it. <laughs> so that's and make decisions like yeah. that. Miles Davis, I don't need time. I need a deadline. You know, like that's yeah. deadlines give you decisions, which give you the product, the art, right? That's and the beauty, the art is in the the artistry is in the decision making. Like that's yeah. really what you need. Yeah. You know? So someone described it to me recently as uh, tight, loose, tight. Tight on your purpose, tight on the outcome you're looking for, loose in the method by which you achieve that. Yeah. So if you can get the purpose tight, like what are we trying, what story are we trying to tell? Get that as tight as possible. Know what the outcome is. We're producing a, a movie or a show for this amount of money, and we're looking for this type of return with this sort of audience. Yeah. Get those things tight. And then you let all the space in the middle to say, given those constraints, let's figure it out. Yeah. I'd say Ghostbusters, yeah. go, the, the ghosts in the original Ghostbusters, I feel like they still work to this day. And I was showing Jack, he was a little terrified, given that he's only two, um, watching some of the ghosts and that. But I feel like the ghosts still work because they were running out of money and had a a theatrical deadline we need to get this thing in theaters on this date and we are running out of time so there was no unified the ghosts in our world look like this they just farmed out to as many contracted hands as possible we need ghosts we need a like a slimer like ghost okay these people are on it we need this ghost coming out of the subway doing this choppy motion okay these people are going to work on that so each of these independent people came up with their own unique take on what these ghosts look like. Mm. And then what happens is you've got this assortment that gives a diversity of the look. Yeah. So it's not just like that. Jim Henson, his movies are great. You can always tell it's a Jim Henson movie by the way of his like character modeling. Yeah. It all, they all kind of look bulbous or really stringy. Yeah. Um, like there's, a to him. like there's his handwriting is all over it yeah yeah so it's like for for better or worse like okay if you have jim henson's studio doing your stuff you're going to get a jim henson look but in the case where you're running out of money and time and you farm it out to a bunch of people you're going to get something that's very diverse which has its benefits too yeah yeah it definitely it created a universe of like you you suddenly understood that all the ghosts could be different and they all had their own sort of qualities and the dog. I imagine that the, the demon dog or whatever that thing is, the Zool dog, that was probably one that they knew. They were like, this has to be, they probably paid for that at, you know, they probably knew who they were working with ahead of time and so forth, right? Because that had a physical prop 
you know, when it's yes. in the closet and it's getting the jackets thrown on it and stuff. Um, whereas the ones that are coming out of the sewer or whatever probably are pretty, were pretty, I mean, they're just quick and mm -hmm. farmed out. Slimer was probably something that they knew about mostly at a time. Um, yeah, they, they but, spent most of their time on the terror dogs and Slimer. And Slimer. However, now that you mention it, it's interesting because when he when they go into the uh, banquet area, he's invisible most of the time too. So that's interesting. Well, yeah, um, the, the funny the funny little trick that they did when Slimer's orbiting the chandelier, yeah, in the banquet room, that was uh, either a small model or a colored piece of gum on the top of a pencil uh -huh. that they did that motion with, and then layered on. <laughs> the the little goo they filmed it and they just had someone twirling it like this yeah that that was that was the the oh, effect But that, I guess the bringing it back to the point, like the the sort of stuff that I'd like making would be uh, stuff <laughs> stuff that's interesting for people to watch. Uh, but from uh, from a perspective of, okay, can you take this one aspect of the world and tweak it, yeah. and then see how the ripples affect all the characters in the story? yeah so that's like for roe this sexual orientation is flipped yeah. and then you ask why is this the case and how does it impact people and yeah. so then that gets us to the story that we're at and then trying to work on no free lunch then is you have a a basement room in a office building that can stop time on the inside or on the outside but not on the inside okay why would that be the case and how does that impact the characters yeah yeah i would i would place you somewhere in the realm of charlie kaufman and alex garland like you're you're neighboring those guys somewhere which i love both of them so that that's if if i ever got compared in some trade magazine to either of those folks i'd be like all right i think i'm doing well yeah um was it Ch Charlie Kaufman? I think is someone that um, can can make stuff that becomes so dense that it's hard to unpack. But when he collaborates with others, then you have this story that has a huge emotional resonance. Like Eternal Sunshine, it's a sort of movie that I've watched I don't know how many times because yeah. the to have, I mean, in re reading the original script for it, it it's so sad. Yeah, <laughs> it's so sad that it's like here's here we are in 2050 or some 2030, some point in the future, and you've got the two main characters that routinely fall in love with it, one another, break up, erase each other from their memories connect again, fall in love, break up, erase each other from their memories. 
Yeah. And you have the end of the story being a woman saying, you know, I, I wish I had found love. I've just had a whole life without it yeah. because she keeps erasing it out of her memory. Yeah. Um, whereas the end of, <laughs> at least in the, the final cut, it's like, oh, the, the story is I'd rather be in love or have the opportunity for love than to to avoid it altogether the better to love and lost than never to have loved at all yeah there it is yeah but in the the kaufman version of the screenplay it's like all right that's a little dark and depressing and yes. um might not connect with a, a a moral that that people can find energy out of yeah um well it would be it would be so Charlie's incredible at getting his inner life out, right? Like he's clearly, he's clearly telling a very big truth and he asks himself very big questions to get there. I think the turmoil and the struggle and why he's appealing and also why he's so, um, what is so hard about watching and rewatching some of his work is that he's clearly someone who deals with anxiety and he's clearly yeah. someone who deals with uh, a lot of doubt and, and personal struggles. And while he shares that, he doesn't have any answers either. Like he has big questions that have led to some other questions. Um, and that's heavy, you know, like that's, mm. and that's, that's not a stream that we can wade into for very long, you know? Yeah. Because ultimately we want resolution. It's yeah. kind of like having a, a bridge leading into a chorus and we're left with the last note of the bridge so there's this like sense of ah i, I need the melody to resolve itself in yeah. order for it to feel okay yeah um and it, it i feel like the stuff that he's written and directed is left with this like uh where's the resolving note here like i i like everything and then I realized, wait a second, w there's not enough rope to have a resolution. Yeah. And then the movie ends. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's something that I'm like, I I want I want to like his stuff more than I do. Yeah. The stuff that I really like is the work that he's had to collaborate with others on. Yes. I think it's good always. So that's what you want to, that's a good segue into the book that, Mm. me working together which is written by michael eisner um and that's sort of so far at least and i think it's gonna remain that the point is to find someone who helps uh who is strong where you are not as strong and vice versa and to work as a team you know i obviously that's easier said than done sometimes but to find that person who you realize is going to temper you from going too far out on the ledge, right? It's good to certainly to push the boundaries and the other person hopefully knows you well enough and, and knows themselves well enough and believes in the pro in the project and the relationship enough to, to give and take, but ultimately it's all in service of the idea, you know, and executing that and letting that sort of dictate and, and sort of establish where it's gonna go and, and neither ego getting in the way of that. Um, yeah, yeah, to, to have it, um... Kind of like with conflict resolution, there's problems when people are pointing fingers at one another and saying you don't get it. Um, it's it works if you 
you recognize, okay, you and I are in this problem and the problem's out here. How can we solve it? And the yeah. same thing from the angle you're talking about. Okay, we've got this um, goal. It's not my goal or your goal. It's a goal out here. How can we achieve that? Yeah. So then it takes the ego out of it. The goal isn't mine. Um, it's something out here that we're figuring out how to work together to achieve it. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's that also is uh, r- relates to the s- storytelling piece that we we're talking about earlier. Like there's a story that we want to tell we want to figure out how we can get to that. The story isn't in me and my perspective there. Um, That's the beauty of a script, right? Like you got it out already. And now it's for all of us to try and build this thing. It's like a, it would be like, as if it'd be as ridiculous as if an architect is like, or a construction manager drafted a, a, a plan for a building and was like, nobody touched this thing. I'm going to do everything. I need to have my hand on the hammer. I need to, you know, like do all the, pour the cement. Like you would never do that. And you would never be like where there were errors from the people on the ground who were actually tactily touching, you know, or touching all the pieces and being like, hey, this measurement is wrong. No, it's not. It's perfect on my plan. Don't you dare say that. Don't you touch it. You're just here to thwart me. Like that's ego, you know? Mm-hmm. How ridiculous would that be to think that this, construction day player is trying to take this project from you just for pointing out something that needs to be done slightly differently. Yeah. I don't know why directors, especially writer directors think that on a set, everyone's trying to like subvert and take this project from them. Now that's not to say that they all think that that's, that's an overstatement, but, but it does happen, you know, and it's, it's a, it well, I think a, it's, there's a, and I feel like a nuanced distinction to make that it's not that we are ego less because there's certainly an ego to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to set a career doing this thing. Right. And I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, there's right. an ego in that because yeah. you can certainly riddle yourself with doubts and say, well, who am I to be able to do this sort of thing? But okay, there's, there's the ego, but the ego isn't enmeshed with the product. Yeah. And I think that's the, the difference when the ego is enmeshed with the product, then yeah. you don't have any room to let others contribute. Yeah. Whole, yeah. For, for me, the whole idea is I, if I want this goal that's out there, I cannot do it alone. My likelihood of success is much lower if I want to try to do it all myself than if I work with others. Right. Okay then that's easy. And I might be uncomfortable, kind of like at times in the sizzle where I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, I want to, I want to grab Jeff and say something or what it's like, no, this is Jeff's show. Like this is, this is his role right now. And then what happens? We get a sizzle back that most everyone that we've shown it to has said, Oh shit, this is awesome. Can I watch it? Is is the show ready? It's like, Oh, well, great. That worked better than I could have hoped for. And it's because we can trust one another to make it happen. Yeah. Rather than get enmeshed in, oh, this is my vision. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I think we were, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think we were pretty good about staving that off and mitigating against that sort of 
ego creep. Whereas at the same time, we were lucky and blessed enough to have such talented collaborators on the set, especially where we could trust them and they were engaging enough and engaged enough to be like, hey, Patrick, Jeff, I know this isn't what you said earlier, but I really think we should do this. I have this idea that, 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 you know, whatever it is, or yeah. I think this is good, but what could help is this, you know, like if you have good enough people on set with you, you actually look so much more brilliant because of it. Right. Like you're, you look like, like I, I'm a firm believer in an idea meritocracy and, and let the best ideas come forth and we'll choose whichever one feels the best or is the most accomplishable uh, given our circumstances. And, and it doesn't have to come from one brain. And like, if it's not, if it doesn't come from me, then it doesn't exist. Like that's that. Okay. I mean, you can operate that way, but you're probably only ever going to get 80% of what you think, you know, mm -hmm. at most, I mean, that on a good day. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, case in point was the the stuff with Adrian and the light and Josh and you know, yeah. coming up with that. Like that's, that was brilliant. You know, like that was exactly, that was better than what, what was originally planned. Mm -hmm. Fle tight flexible tight that's exactly what you said earlier there was that flexibility right there to be like okay let's go with another direction you know yeah uh, yeah jaws jaws is that much better because the freaking shark broke and they were like well shit how do we get a shark to well okay well if we're shooting them with barrels that float let's just pull the barrels around for a couple of days and shoot that and like <laughs> that's what made it so great you know yeah. like you didn't have to see the shark. You knew where the shark was. The sharks are now the barrels, you know, like perfect, easy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, we've been talking offline about this in some of the comments, but uh, it's interesting. And I think it's very telling that now that people have become more and more people are seeing essentially what started inside of your head and inside of yourself is as a question to yourself. Um, and the feedback has been oftentimes, this feels like a black mirror episode. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's high praise first off. And second off, like, yeah, I think that's probably, I think that's probably where much of your voice as a writer probably exists um, because they're oftentimes asking very subversive questions. Yeah. There's a little bit of a, given your background and your intelligence and your education, there's a bit, and your perspective on the world, there's a bit of a techno-futurist quality to it. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a humanism to it, you know. Um, and I think there's just a little bit of fun. Like, there are fun episodes of, most of the ideas, if not all of them for Black Mirror, are extremely fun ideas. Even if they're provocative, they're very like, Wow. The prime minister just got blackmailed into doing what on television? Or there's a game where you have to hunt people randomly and you might be that person given, you know, just randomly chosen. Like, holy mo, like what? Like mm -hmm. what a fun idea. Like what if that did happen? What if reality TV was life or death and it could take place at any given time all day long? Yeah. And nobody cared. Nobody was going to interfere because the, 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 the drama was that good, you know? Yeah. And the thing where uh, I think the the distinction I'd like to have from Black Mirror is that while most of the Black Mirror concepts were fun, it became very dark. Like yeah. many of the the twists ended up 
on a very sour note, people dying or about to die or in a world where, like I think of the John Hamm Christmas episode, um, like, oof. So there's, there's stuff like that, that I'm like, oh, that's, that's rough. Like, are there, are there stories in which, yes, it's techno-futurist and yes, there are dark things at play, but there's a greater good that comes out of it. Like generally, I think I'm an optimist, but an optimist that is grounded in realism enough to think it's not just all going to work out just because there's probably going to be lots of pain involved however it can work yes yeah that being said i do have a meeting that starts in 10 seconds okay Uh, do you want to pick this up later um sure okay i'll i can give you a buzz when i'm done with my thing or maybe after the vfx call too okay all right Sounds good. Cool. See ya. On our next episode, we'll talk about the outcomes of our networking, both with investors and executives at media and cable network companies. Tune in next week for Two Guys Making a TV Show.